and I just didn't know what I'd done wrong. Um, I knew I'd done something, but I didn't know what I'd done wrong. And I carried that kind of question in my mind for years. What have I done wrong? <laughs> you know, it became a, a theme that kind of encompassed everything I did. I'm Papillon de Boer. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm a licensed clinical mental health counselor specializing in sexual trauma. And this is Am I Broken? Survivor Stories. Every day in the United States, over 500,000 mental health professionals work with clients to alleviate their suffering, many of whom have suffered sexual trauma. But how many therapists themselves have had unwanted or abusive sexual experiences? How have they healed? And how does this affect their professional work? In this season of Am I Broken, therapists who are also survivors tell their stories of abuse and healing. We are about to hear from a survivor. Their story may include profanity and raw descriptions of abuse. Please take care of yourself and pause as needed especially if you become overwhelmed, numb, or confused. If you find yourself in crisis or need further support in the U.S., you can call the National Sexual Violence Hotline at 800-656-4673 or message them at rainn.org. Today we're here with Deborah who's a licensed clinical mental health counselor and a licensed clinical addiction specialist, and whose pronouns are she, her. Deborah, thanks so much for doing this tonight. Mm, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So what's calling you to share your story on the podcast? Well, the opportunity to help somebody else. I think the minute, um, at least the minute I decided to become a therapist, I thought I had to keep my own issues low and slow. And for the sake of professionalism, I think that's true. Um, I come from a generation where trauma, especially sexual trauma, was kept very secret. Um, I blamed myself. I mean, it was just so surrounded in shame. And I think that times have changed, and I want to be a part of that. And if I can help one other professional out there, understand that they're not alone, go find somebody to talk to. I mean, this is the status quo of what we say to our clients, but it's so difficult for us to say it to ourselves. At least that's been my experience. Yeah, it's been mine too. Thank you. So when did you first realize that what happened to you was a sexualized violation? Oh gosh, I was a year sober. Um, I started out in eating disorders treatment that was very 12-step based. And then immediately was sent to um, substance use specific inpatient treatment. And um, it, it was just common in eating disorders, recovery and treatment 34 years ago that somebody had sexualized somebody with an eating disorder. It was like hand in glove or peas and carrots. And they wanted to cast blame on my father. And I'm like, listen, my dad's like the nicest person in the world. I don't think it was him. But I wasn't willing to rule it out as a drunk and a drug addict, I had been raped three times. I was, you know, a little old school in thought. I didn't count that. I was drunk. I deserved it. Uh, maybe I was being provocative, um, searching for love in all the wrong places. It's all my fault. 
So I kept my mind and heart open to a possibility that maybe something had happened earlier. And I was a year sober. I had spent the day with a sober friend and I went home, took a nap and saw each of my sexual assaults very vividly. The first one was at age three by some neighbors. And what was so painful about this sexual assault is while they were doing it to me, my mother walked up and saw it. And all she ever said about it is you can't ever go to their house and play again, ever. And I just didn't know what I'd done wrong. Um, I knew I'd done something, but I didn't know what I'd done wrong. And I carried that kind of question in my mind for years. What have I done wrong? <laughs> you know, it became a, a theme that kind of encompassed everything I did. And then the three rapes, the three sexual assaults. I remembered them in Technicolor that day. And I'm very fortunate in that I went to eating disorders treatment at Park Ridge Hospital. And I immediately got on the phone with a therapist. And she said all the right things. It's not your fault. Um, and be, you know, that was on a Sunday afternoon, come in tomorrow morning and we'll get to work on it. And, 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 and they helped me tremendously take a giant leap in the right direction. What I found very odd, the last sexual assault was on a blind date and he was a businessman. You know, there's this, um, nomenclature about what does a rapist look like? Well, a rapist can wear a Brooks Brothers suit. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time, but I found it out the hard way. And at this time, my mother was dying with cancer. Um, we had been told that she was down to months to live. And I remember just asking him, don't hit me. Please don't leave any marks on me because my mother will be so upset. And I can remember thinking, I mean, that was such a turning point for me. Um, I was always kind of a sharp dresser flashy. You know, it was the 80s. We were all kind of flashy. And I can remember not wearing nice clothes, not bathing. Looking back now, it was clinical depression. I began to use Dilaudid. Heroin wasn't really around then, but we were IV injecting Dilaudid. And that was just a line I swore I'd never cross. And at that point, I crossed it in a big way. And in, while my mother was dying. So that was the sexual assault that's really stuck with me for a long, long time. And I didn't even realize it. I mean, I was 19 years sober. I was raising a great kid on my own. I uh, was working in a field that I loved, highly thought of by my peers. And it's like, why in the fuck do I still apologize for taking up the air in a room? And uh, being a compulsive overeater, binge eating disorders, the, the newer term for it, I had put on quite a lot of weight and I had really lost control of my weight um, after that sexual assault. I mean, my eating disorder just went off the chain. Um, laxative abuse, looking back now, I could restrict. That would set me up for a food binge. So it was always, you know, if I lose that last pesky 30 pounds, maybe somebody will love me. You know, that was the uh, spiel that went on in my head all the time. I'm 19 years sober. I've put on weight. And I said, well, shoot, I'm going to do a weight gain timeline. And then my memory immediately went to this particular sexual assault. I had been clear not to get drunk that night. 
I hadn't used any drugs that night. I mean, I was really trying to be careful uh, because this guy was a doctor. He was a physician with an MBA. So I thought, gosh, you know, my mom's dying. And if I'm engaged to this really nice guy, you know, when she dies, she'll die in peace. And boy, what a night that turned out to be. Uh, he told me he'd kill me if I didn't give him what he wanted. And I believed him. I believed him. And I walked in the house that night. My mother said, what happened to you today? I said, nothing, nothing. Everything's fine, Mom. What are you worried about? So I ha started having these memories in Technicolor. And I went to a therapist. And she had an agenda for our session. Learned a lot that day. And didn't want to talk about it. And uh, she was in Asheville. I live in Hendersonville. And uh, I was driving home in a blinding rain. And I started really grieving all the lost time. What that night had taken from me. Apologizing for the air in a room. I mean, all this achievement. Just to be alive from a substance use disorder was phenomenal. And, and all the other things that I had been able to accomplish in my recovery and, you know, all that self-hatred and shit, I'm 40 years old. I mean, that's a lot of lost time apologizing for your existence, or at least it was for me. And I'm telling you, the only reason I didn't drive my car off a bridge was my son. He was the only thing that kept me alive that night. And I went home and uh, it was late in the evening then. And the next morning I called my AA sponsor. And if you offered me a million dollars, I can't remember what she said to me. But she said something because all of a sudden I was okay. And um, I got on with my life. I still have moments where I want to apologize for taking up the air in a room. And when that happens, I go to my therapist and I have some EMDR practice some self-compassion, and, and move on till the next time. I mean, I'm not sure there's an expiration date on trauma. I haven't found it yet. I haven't found it. Well said. What do you see as the link between sobriety and then these memories emerging in Technicolor? Sobriety. The hardest part about early recovery for clients is as the substance goes out of their system and they're getting physically healthier, they're getting, if they need mental health meds, they're getting stable, their sleep patterns are getting regular, all those fucking memories <laughs> come <laughs> raising to the surface like um, monsters, wolves in sheep's clothing that we have to reckon with. Um, the, not necessarily trauma, but horrible decisions. The way I spoke to people when I was impaired. I mean, I treated people like garbage. I really did. Um, and all that shame rising up to the top. So sobriety is the imperative. And I, I understand why people use until they die and can't do it. Because it's painful. It's hard. But without sobriety for me, um, I never would have come this far knowing that none of it was my fault, that no matter what woman was there that night, she was going to get raped. And I happened to be the one that was there and to put the blame on my perpetrator and not on myself was huge. Yes. So you see one of the functions of addiction as being repressing not just memories, but also parts of ourselves, 
good parts and bad parts. Oh, you can't have one without the other. You know, you can't pick and choose. You know, in the beginning of my use, uh, I had other traumas that weren't sexual in nature. My best friend died on his sixth birthday when I was seven, and it was very sudden. An arsonist came through Hendersonville and burned my elementary school to the ground. (laughs) My favorite aunt died. My brother and sister were both diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And this was in the late 60s, early 70s when treatments were just, I mean, it was horrible. They weren't stable at all. And it was just one thing after another. And the night I found drugs and alcohol, I mean, it kept me alive. I didn't give a fuck anymore. (laughs) I mean, how do you feel today? I don't care. I don't care how anybody else feels. I don't feel sad anymore. This is heaven. This is this is heaven on earth to not care anymore. And I believe my addiction kept me alive. I think I would have committed suicide if I hadn't been a drug addict. That's powerful. I mean, I just couldn't take it. And I can remember being 14 years old and I was probably looking back. My memories are so sketchy. I was probably dissociative half the time. I would go in my room and eat big bags of potato chips and uh, drink Coke and then take laxatives to get rid of it. And uh, I mean, I was already a chronic shoplifter. I loved the thrill and I loved getting away with something. And when I got arrested for that, I couldn't do that anymore. So the eating disorder went up. And then one summer, I really started um, restricting bad and exercising a lot. And in this sick society we live in, I mean, oh, you look fabulous. <laughs> I'm malnourished, you know, looking back. But oh, I just got so many kudos. And when I walked into high school, I was like a different person. And I was high. So for six months, life was good till I got addicted. Will you say a little bit more about the link between eating disorders and sexual trauma? Oh, yeah. I'm pretty convinced. At least I'm one of those folks that my weight served as a wall of protection around me. I wanted to be loved and I wanted to be appreciated for my beauty more than anything else in the world. But I have memories of, of who appeared to be nice men looking at me, smiling at me, you know, kind of giving me, throwing me a little shade, and I would avert my gaze. I just couldn't do it. It gave me protection and eating disorders. It's like it was something I could control till I couldn't anymore. Like just like drugs and alcohol. You know, I could control it till I couldn't anymore. So it definitely serves as, first thing it serves as is I don't have to do the deeper stuff if I'm doing a graph on how many carbs I've had that day, <laughs> you know, I don't have to do the deeper stuff if I've been on uh, the scales 20 times a day or I'm trying a new diet. I don't have to think about what happened to me and I don't have to think about how I feel about it at all. So, yes, it absolutely serves a function and a powerful function in, in my clinical experience, far more powerful than a drug and alcohol addiction. It's the best avoidance ever (laughs) because society does give you a lot of kudos for being thinner, um, being a certain weight, looking lean. So you've got the world validating you. Maybe for some people the first time in their life, especially if they were on the heavier side as a kid, 
and all of a sudden they gain control and it, it's like a match in gunpowder. If the brain, you know, if that tweak is in the brain where it feels so good to be so thin, yeah, it, it can be a lifelong thing. So what's it like then to work through that and to find acceptance for yourself as you are and for your body as it is? Well, I think <laughs> birthdays are wonderful because after a while, you know, I kind of got worn out with caring so much about what everybody else thought about my body. And I got involved with health at every size and intuitive eating and starting to believe some of the um, junk that we have, no pun intended, the junk we've been fed by the medical community, body mass index, an insurance actuary came up with that. <laughs> Not even a doctor. I mean, nobody in medicine. How unhealthy uh, Food and Drug Administration. I mean, just on so many levels. Um, and one day, I, you know, I'm 39 years old. I'm walking down to the beach, putting on that dreaded bathing suit. And it was like an awakening because I looked around and there were very, very white people and very, very dark people and a few lean people. Lots of people who, by standards, were carrying around too many pounds, hairy people, people with no hair. And it struck me that not one soul was looking at me, that I had been doing more of it to myself than the culture had with these unreasonable standards for who I was supposed to be. That was the first breath of fresh air. And I think intuitive eating was the next, getting the diet culture out of my life. And I've, I think I have a pretty big personality, and I'm not so sure my personality was supposed to be contained in a little tiny body. <laughs> I just don't think it was my destiny. And then I meet this wonderful man at 50 years old, and I'm at my heaviest when I met him. <laughs> After we were intimate together the first time, I was making our lunch, and I made it naked. And it was on a Sunday afternoon. And it's like, well, you know, fuck him. If he doesn't like this, there's the fucking door. Because I've done all this, I'll be pretty and you'll love me shit till I'm over it. And this is me. Me has had a cesarean section. Me has gained and lost like 800 pounds. <laughs> me is still here, motherfucker. I have a mouth like a sailor. I'm sorry. I just do. Please be you. Be you. Part, part of my charm. <laughs> <I tell> you. <laughs> you know, and there's the goddamn door. I pay my own bills. I own my own home. I've raised a good man. I've been clean and sober so long. You know, I've beaten the statistics. And this is me. And if you can't love me then you can leave. And I don't care. I mean, I'm sure it'll hurt a little, but shit, it's Sunday afternoon. I'll be over it by Tuesday. It's nothing I'm going to drink over or put a gun in my mouth. And you know, he, he was looking at me standing there cooking as naked as the day I was born. And I said, why are you staring at me like that? Really defensive. And he said, I just don't want you to burn yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, it, when we surround ourselves with loving, good people, which can be the hardest task uh, with complex PTSD, is to trust people. So I had to learn how to watch people. You know, it may, I think Ann Landers, anybody out there remembers who Ann Landers was, um, you know, if they'll treat somebody else poorly, eventually they'll treat me poorly. 
So I spent time watching how people treated each other before I would invite somebody to be in my life. And having an AA sponsor, I'm telling you, mentorship, sponsorship, a good woman is a healing thing. An honest, loving woman can do more to heal wounds for another woman or another survivor than about anything else I can think of. That's what worked for me, finding a good AA sponsor who was loving and very hardcore, very hardcore, do it or die. It's, it's a real choice here, do it or die. Uh, nothing was a suggestion, <laughs> you know, like we suggest if you're going to jump out of an airplane and you're wearing a parachute, pull the ripcord. I mean, when you're in the rooms of recovery, I mean, I think that's the part that's so fortunate. You know, we know statistically that six out of 10 women who present for treatment and four out of 10 men are victims of sexual assault. Just going in a rehab, those are the statistics. So I'm, I'm with my people. They get me. And that's very healing. That opens a door of safety and a willingness to talk. Yeah, you've named community, you've named sobriety, you've named EMDR. Mm -hmm. What would you say was most useful in your healing? One of those or anything else that comes to mind, but what feels like it was just most integral to your healing from sexual trauma? Mm, I'd have to say the women of recovery because they'd all been there. I walked through my life feeling like a freak show. You know, the day I had the dream where I remembered vividly these sexual assaults. I mean, the dream was in color. I remembered what I was wearing. I remembered the time of year. I mean, extremely vivid. I felt so filthy. And then I began to open up to other women. And, you know, men weren't talking about it back then. They just really couldn't own it yet. And, and to have them say, well, yeah, I get it. And they were the first ones to say, this was absolutely not your fault. Even if you were drunk, just because somebody's loaded doesn't mean they're rapable. That's not okay. It's not okay. And they were the first people to plant the seed of acceptance and hope. Then that informed what I needed to do next. Okay, now it's time to go to a therapist, you know. And then as issues have come up, I've gone deeper and deeper in and I have found EMDR, for me, uh, was like shedding that last layer of skin, almost. Peeling back that last layer where I got more and more okay with me, who I am in a bigger body, um, as uh, almost 61 years old, um, the way I do therapy. It got me okay and really flexible, if that makes sense. Lots of flexibility and how I see myself in the world. I don't know if, any of that, if I'm making myself clear. Oh, you absolutely are. And, you know, one of the things I find myself wondering also is how you have seen not just societal attitudes about sexual trauma shift and change over your lifetime, but also the field of treatment of trauma shift and change. I think it has gotten exponentially better. 15 years or so ago, I ran an IOP group, you know, good old Medicaid and IPRS funded. And if I didn't give somebody a, a mood disorder via whoever it was then, would send the paperwork back 
and we're not going to pay for their IOP. And I talked to my supervisor and just give them all of my mood disorder and let's get them in group and get it paid for. As soon as the conversation shifted to trauma and attachment, and, and I knew I was having to be really careful and kind of keep my own history out of it, but the storytelling of hundreds, hundreds of other people is like, this is it. This is the key that's going to unlock the door. Now I, I kind of want to taste puke in my mouth when people say the word triggered. Most of the time, I don't even know what the fuck they're talking about when you say triggered. (laughs) (laughs) You know, your cat triggered me. The color of your pants triggered me. Um, If I say my weight, somebody's triggered. As a professional, I hate the overuse of a very powerful term. So I think the pendulums, I'm listening to other clinicians and it's like, nah, you know, they don't meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD, maybe trauma and other related stressor, but they never believed they were going to die. They never believed that somebody they loved was going to die. And cleaning up diagnostically, and I, I'm not a fan of pathologizing people. You know, I'm not a fan of that. Um, we're in a world we have to diagnose, but to tell somebody they've got, you're, you're irrevocably broken. Oh, I have such a hot button with that. I really do. No, I don't believe that. I don't believe that about anybody. But I do think trauma and attachment are going to inform the way we do therapy from here on out. And I think it's going to be life-changing for a lot of people. How does your trauma experience influence your work as a therapist? I think it makes me really empathetic and compassionate. Um... But yet I am, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not the most directive therapist you'll ever meet, uh, but I'm loaded with recommendations and skills for people to try. And I'm always measuring behavior. And with some clients, there comes a point where I have to ask, is, is identifying as a victim become very comfortable for you? Not like a smart ass, but as a genuine question because people get so deeply buried in fear that they run out of hope. They just don't believe they can change. They're afraid if they change, they're going to get hurt again. I mean, and it's a very real fear. So that becomes clinical. It becomes very informative when I assign homework or, or try a new skill during, during a, a, you know, panic, anxiety, feeling triggered. Well, did you use your skills? No, I didn't want to. That becomes clinical and is very um, telling about where a person believes they are as far as hope and, and their ability to heal and what healing is going to look like. Sure, we can only be so gentle with a client before that starts to compromise their healing and their growth. We become an enabler. I mean, I think that's what happens, you know, so-and-so's coming in, it's two o'clock on Tuesday, this is their appointment time, and, you know, I have to look at my own comfort level. Do I like it because I know they're going to be there, and they're really a nice person, and I feel really sorry for them? You know, old AA members used to have an expression, sympathies between shit and syphilis in the dictionary, and they're, (laughs) you know... (laughs) That's the real old AA. And, you know, (laughs) and they're right. Okay. You know, if you're afraid of change, let's examine that. 
If you've given up hope, let's talk about that. Let's talk about your vision of what a, a, a better life is. Let's make sure we're on the same page. Yeah, and if after that goes on, usually by then the client's telling me they're going somewhere else because I'm getting like, do you, are you sure you want to be here? You know, when people will quit eating, do you need to go back to treatment? Do you need to feel safe? Because treatment's safe. Treatment's predictable. Nothing is very challenging in treatment. You know, they're giving me my meds at 8.30 and I'm supposed to have them at 8. I mean, that's the most challenging thing. And it's like, if that's what you need, feel like you need, um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. But avoidance, it's, it's a definitely a thing. It's definitely a thing. Oh, sure. It's a coping strategy. And it's workable up to a certain point. Right. I can see that point has come, but sometimes the client can't see that that point has come. Yeah, and it's a it's a tricky, tricky line to walk to try to help someone understand that without making them run out of the room. Yes, yes. Is your own experience something that you disclose as part of your approach to working with sexual trauma? Mm, it depends. It depends, and not very often, and generally with a client that I've known for some time. When I do, and I don't get very specific, I'll sit, you know, I, I really do. I really do. Um, I, I don't know how you feel, but I can sure identify. That's about as far as I go. A very general disclosure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because I think that just that's one of those areas that just muddy the water. I'll tell anybody, yeah, I'm in recovery, three, four years. You know, I'll tell anybody that. But the disclosing of sexual trauma is just a little trickier than substance use disorder stuff or eating disorder stuff. What feels trickier about this to you? Sometimes that's when we find out we're in the room with a borderline and I'm trying not to be it. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. There have been times in the past where it just didn't feel good to me. Uh, maybe later on, four sessions later. Well, Deborah, maybe the reason you're pushing me so hard is it's your own stuff you haven't dealt with. I've heard that before. Got it. It's offering a piece of vulnerability that then can be used against you by someone who's wired that way. Right. And just because they're my client doesn't mean they're worthy of my vulnerability. They have to earn that too. My vulnerability. Does that make sense? Heard. Yeah, absolutely. How have you found or made meaning out of these various traumas that you experienced? I think because I sort of, I've always thought that way. Um, even as a little kid, staring up at a tree or laying down in the grass in my parents' front yard, I wanted to understand how everything worked. I wanted to understand how it was interconnected. My mother was a woman who, who tried to find meaning in everything. Um, I think I was conditioned and raised that way. And I think therapeutically as a clinician, I have to be really careful and not get that on people. Uh, some people don't have that need. They just need help. And I'm okay with that. Um, I, I work with, when I work with people, 
in that process of, um, you know, does this give meaning? And they say, no, okay, then we'll go from there. I am a person who finds, you know, when my car, my AA sponsor, truthfully, I remember one day I had to put my car on a tow truck. I called her and I said, well, this day couldn't get any worse. I mean, you know, that's a hard day when your car goes off on a tow truck. And she said, well, for some reason, you just were not supposed to be on the road today. And that may sound very elementary to a lot of people, but for me, it it gets me unwound. I quit questioning. Well, for some reason, I wasn't supposed to be on the road today. For some reason, I'm supposed to be home today. And I may never know why. But just accepting the flow of things, I think, has been one of the most powerful things for me. I don't know why. And so many people question, you know, if there was something loving in the universe, why would they have allowed this to happen to me? People do shitty things to each other every day. And I think we hear it as therapists, you know, how absolutely horrible people can be uh, to other people. And I don't know how I can fix that, but I can make sure that it doesn't take me out. That I do have agency over. But yeah, I think simplicity, not overcomplicating my pain. I tell clients all the time, stay away from the rabbit hole. <laughs> you know, some there are some days, you know, a, a halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. When I'm hungry, angry, lonely, tired, it's easy to go down the rabbit hole. So I have to use the very same skills I teach my clients, lots of thought stopping. Just don't even go to worst case scenario. You know, going to worst case scenario is a control issue. You know, when I was a single, a active single mother, you know, three, four, five-year-old, there had to be plan on top of plan on top of plan on top of plan to make sure the house of cards didn't fall apart. I've since learned that's very much a trauma response, expecting the other shoe to fall. And over time, and always looking back, well, look at this horrible thing that happened, you know, and I handled it. I did okay. You know, you kind of get a track record after a while of doing things right and doing things well. And I think paying attention to the positives, even though the negatives are very real, choosing to focus on what I do right instead of what I do wrong is remarkably healing. Yeah, absolutely. In acceptance and commitment therapy, we say that our our brains are literally wired evolutionarily to focus on the negative and predict the negative. If we travel back 30,000 years in time to a group of people sitting around a fire and there's a noise in the forest, the group that said, oh, that's probably just the wind, they didn't survive. Yeah, we never got to meet that group. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so our brains have developed to be able to do this negative prediction, which was very useful for survival. But now when we can walk to the fridge and make a sandwich without getting attacked by a saber-toothed tiger, that part of our brain very recently in human history doesn't have a lot to do other than just visit the negative over and over again in this ham-fisted attempt to keep helping us. Yes. And, you know, trauma does that. You know, we blame ourselves when it happens because that's our brain trying to make sense of it. That's what EMDR teaches, that our brain wants to make sense of it. So if I blame myself, then I have some control 
over it somehow, and that maybe if I can figure it out, it'll never happen again. So, it, it, like you say, it's an adaptive feature gone awry. You know, it's it's not. It has to be worked with, and I do believe it's at a brain based level. That's why it's so challenging. Is there one thing that you would like listeners to take away from your interview? Mm. First thing that comes to mind is if I can, anybody can, and don't don't give up. Don't give up on yourself. I mean, give up. I mean, sometimes we have to give up on clients. I mean, and that may not be the uh, toe in the party line. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hell, I'm too old. You know, uh, it would have been fun 20 years ago. Now it's like, oh, I'm bored and tired. This is not good. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, don't give up on ourselves. Sometimes I'll be sitting in session and a client will tell a story. And I have to say, okay, girl, <laughs> gird your loins. This is all sounding really familiar. And to take a breath and take that step back and pause and then zero right back in on that client, you know, with that awareness. Don't freak out when that happens because it will happen. I mean, you, if you stay in the field long enough, somebody will come sit in your office and tell your story or big pieces of your story. And, and just take that breath, <laughs> you know, emotionally step back for just a minute and take that breath and then go right back at it as many times as you need to, as many times as you need to. It's part of the connection. It's unavoidable, really. So, Deborah, given the name of the podcast, are you broken? Oh, God, yes. Say more. Yeah, I'm human. I mean, I don't, I don't think being broken, you know, I, I would sit, you know, with other students who are trying so hard not to be human. I think being broken is the human condition. I haven't met anybody that's had a perfect life. Nobody comes out unscathed. And I know that in owning, you know, it's par- it's a paradox. The more I own my brokenness, the more well I actually am. It's the people running around thinking they're okay, and the therapists who tell me they're okay, and the new parents who tell me they got it hammered down, they're ready. And I'm thinking, fuck me, this is going to be a dumpster fire. You know, it's it, it, owning my brokenness makes me aware, and whatever thimble full of humility I have, that's where it comes from. Um, yeah, I'm broken and I'm okay with that today. I had a lot of fun interviewing Deborah and I learned some things, which is always cool. I haven't had very many sexual trauma clients who struggle with disordered eating. And when they do, it's often with orthorexia which is disordered eating disguised as ultra-healthy eating. But I did poke around a little bit to learn some more about the connection between eating disorders and sexual trauma. And I found that at least 50% of folks who struggle with eating disorders report some form of sexual abuse. And also that a sexual trauma history tends to be more prevalent with folks who struggle with bulimic-type disordered eating or binge-and-purge-type disordered eating than folks who have 
more of a restrictive anorexic style. I had also never heard of intuitive eating, and it sounds pretty cool. It's not a weight loss program, but rather it's about getting in touch with your body's hunger signals, eating what sounds good to you, stopping when you're full, and basically making peace with food. And apparently there's some evidence that it can improve self-esteem and body image, as well as have other potential health benefits. There also seems to be some research that suggests that intuitive eating can help with folks who struggle with disordered eating. Something that Deborah asked early on that I want to highlight is, what does a rapist look like? And I hope that you've learned from this program that a rapist can look like anyone at all. Nobody's walking around with a sign on their head or a certain behavior or warning flags flying out behind them. A rapist can be of any gender, any sexual orientation, any age. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind, especially in helping to educate others out of this stranger-in-a-dark-alley myth. Deborah also mentions the difficulty we undergo as clinicians with providing a mental health diagnosis. Health insurance requires us to diagnose someone with a mental illness in order for their treatment to be paid. This puts us in a little bit of a bind. It means pathologizing someone's experiences, potentially labeling them for the rest of their life, and using terminology developed by a bunch of white guys in suits sitting around voting on what should be a mental illness and what shouldn't. For those who are unaware, homosexuality was until recently considered a mental illness by the people who wrote the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So yeah, it's a little bit uncomfortable. And, at times, a label or a construct can be useful for a client as a lens through which to see their own experiences internally and externally. For me, PTSD is probably the most common diagnosis that I give because I'm firmly in the camp of believing that it's our traumatic experiences that give us so much psychological distress. Deborah also makes a therapeutic distinction that I really like. Clients who come looking for meaning and clients who come looking for help. These are two very different treatment goals, and I really like how she highlighted this. Finally, I also love that Deborah owned that being broken is part of being human. I may be the only other therapist who said that they felt broken at the very first episode of this second season. And it's been interesting to me to interview all these therapists and hear, I believe, all the rest of them say no, that they don't feel broken, or they don't think of themselves as broken. So thanks, Deborah. Thanks for joining me in Team Broken. And it's not that we have this negative, hopeless view. It's acknowledging that, yes, these are parts of us. And as she said, there's no expiration date on trauma. Well... This is it for the second season of Am I Broken Survivor Stories. Thanks a lot for tuning in and listening. Thanks to all of you who have joined as patrons. I really appreciate it. And if you, dear listener, want access to some outtakes from interviews, 
my answers to letters and questions that I'm asked via email, with permission of the authors, of course. You can follow me at patreon.com slash papillondeboer. For five bucks a month, you support the podcast. As always, thanks for listening, take good care of yourselves, and I hope to see you for a third season in the fall. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. It is not only through the telling of the story, but through listening and believing that we can work together to prevent more sexual violence in our communities. This podcast was made possible by the Agency of Change. In the immortal words of Octavia Butler, all that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. Papillon de Boer is a licensed clinical mental health counselor at agencyofchange.net. Am I Broken? Survivor Stories was recorded, engineered, produced, and scored by Papillon de Boer. Please share this podcast with others and help end the epidemic of sexual violence. Thank you.